You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that enjoy discussing movies and related topics. And for this Christmas special, we're very pleased to welcome two guests uh, on with us. We have uh, frequent Movie Heaven, Movie Hell uh, contributor and filmmaker Clive Ashenden. So welcome back, Clive. Yippee-ki-yay. Yippee-ki-yay, indeed. And we also have, for the first time on this podcast, um, screenwriter and fellow podcaster Stuart Wright. So welcome to the show, Stuart. You right, fellas? Very good to have you on. Very good to have you on. Um, obviously, we've all worked together before on various projects, but for the uh, benefit of any of our listeners out there, Stuart, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, we've literally all four of us worked together on one film, haven't we? We did out of hours together. We did, which, yeah. Uh, which premiered at Rain Dance. Um, I'm a screenwriter, as as um, as Keith said, um, and I host the um, Britflix.com podcast every week. My screenwriting, I guess, focuses on genre, probably leaning more towards horror than anything else. I've got a Norwegian uh, script in development with pinball films and i've got a contained horror which i'm working with with a director called adam crow which you know you don't attempt fate but it's it seemingly got some heat at the moment so we'll see if that heat turns into a green light oh well done nice one and of course you're also a um a frequent uh fright fester as well aren't you I am, I am, and if any any listeners are interested in um, certainly the last four years, there's probably about 60, 70 podcasts previewing films that played at Frightfest, which I've conveniently collated on my blog, which is a WordPress site, which is easy to find, as if you search Leighton Rocks, Leighton as in L-E-Y-T-O-N, um, they're all collated under the banner of Frightfest, so uh, easy to find there, or hunt around in iTunes or SoundCloud. Splendid. So we're all here tonight to um, to talk about those Christmas films that not necessarily are Christmas films, but take place at the time of Christmas and over the years have now become tradition to watch at Christmas. So we've picked one of these films to to talk about and uh if you haven't guessed by um 
Clive's uh, response, then uh, the film we're going to talk about is Die Hard. Yay, yippee ki <laughs> In fact, uh, this was, to be fair, this was actually your idea, wasn't it, Clive? Uh, yeah, on, uh, uh, it, it, it was. Well, you know, it's it's that time of year where, you know, you want to watch something very Christmassy. Uh, so, you know, for me, Die Hard sort of fits the bill every year. I know some people don't consider it a Christmas movie. And, you know, I, I can see that. Obviously, it's a, it's primarily a, an action movie. But, you know, but th- there are so many Christmassy elements that it sort of, you know, it's, it's become almost like a... Uh, uh, you know, like a, you get an involuntary kind of Christmassy feeling when you watch it. Well, at least I do. Well, it's weird that people would think it's not a Christmas film, given it's about a man going back to his family for the Christmas holidays, which is sort of the whole start of the movie. That seems it's it's odd that people would think it. Well, yeah, I mean, we we, we did our we did last year we did our movie heaven movie hell Christmas picks, and um, okay. we were gonna we were gonna do the same thing this year, and then. When uh, when Clive suggested about the Die Hard thing, myself and Simon, uh, you know, Die Hard has come up on our on our podcast before from time to time. So we were happy to jump on that one and say, yes, let's make it a Die Hard Christmas. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Well, as, as there are so many good Christmas films, there are also a load of bad ones. <laughs> I don't think we could face doing it again. <laughs> no, last year was bad enough. Yeah, Jing, Jing, Jingle All the Way was was you know did it. That was it. I was over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, we could have done Jingle All the Way Part Two. Oh, was there? Yeah. Oh my God, I didn't even know there was. Okay, I avoid it. <laughs> I managed to avoid that one. Thank God. <laughs> Uh, so Die Hard then what yes. about Memory Lane then when did, when did we all first see Die Hard what's our memories of, of, of that film back in the day because of course we're talking 1988 right we are indeed scary isn't it wow it's been <laughs> that long well I never saw it at the cinema although I was just probably I was just shy of being legal old enough to go and see it Um. So, you know, I, I definitely saw it on VHS first. Yeah, same here. Probably the same for all of us, I guess. Well, my first memory of is seeing it in the adverts for CBS Fox. Because you always have the bit with um, John McClane going, Welcome to the party, pal! Mm. And um, that was my sort of first memory of it. And um, the first time I watched it, um, I didn't remember not being too impressed by it. I, I, what? Yeah, I, really? yeah, first, well, the first time, um, I don't know, I just, I wasn't into it. And, um, it was like a couple of years later when I, I saw it again. That's when I, I finally sort of, I was into it and I really got it. And I couldn't believe my first reaction to it. I was like, wow, how did I could think this was a bad film? But I remember the first time I just, I, I guess I just wasn't the right age for it. I mean, I certainly wasn't. 18 back then <laughs> yeah, yeah fair enough clive um is this uh, this is slightly difficult for me just because I, I almost can't remember a time where i did not know die hard if you see what i mean mm. yeah. um 
you know, I mean, obviously not as a not as a child, but uh, well, I was going to say, are you a soothsayer? Did you see it coming? <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, I, 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 I was I dreamt about it before it happened. No, um, no, but it, it sort of cast my mind back. I feel like I've always, <laughs> I've, I've, I've always seen Die Hard. Um, but uh, no, I, I was definitely, I, I was definitely uh, a big Moonlighting fan. Uh, which was the Bruce Willis, Sybil Shepherd series, which was massive at the time, this sort of screwball uh, detective series, uh, which, you know, was one of those, like, big, you know, transatlantic hits. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I, remember, I remember seeing Bruce Willis also in uh, Blind Date, yeah, I remember is, Blind Date. He's, yeah. he's sort was of that like, with Kim Bassinger, wasn't it? Is yeah, that right? it was, yeah. yeah. But that was his like first attempt to kind of break through into the movies, which didn't really go that well. Um, I, I, I don't think it was a big hit, even though it's quite, even though I think it's a funny film. But mm. um, it was really, you know, Die Hard was the kind of the movie no one really expected. You know, this idea of, well, you get this guy and he's like a sort of light romantic lead and suddenly you're going to put him in action a movie you've got to think at this time obviously uh, you know this is the sort of you know the heyday right of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and all these massively kind of pumped up uh you know guys or or martial artists like you know Jean, Jean-Claude Van Damme is just just sort of coming through Chuck um, Norris Chuck <laughs> Norris uh you know so and he sort of broke the mould, really, didn't he? As to what I what we think of as an action hero. I think that's that's the main thing that happened, and, and I was thinking about it today. That one of the one of one of the it, it got lumped in for for a long time with all the other action hero movies, when quite clearly it was a cut above the kind of simplistic one-liners from from Arnie or from Stallone or Chuck Norris, God forbid. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a you know it was a hell of a lot smarter than those. But because of the way the VHS market kind of bubbled, they all just were the same thing. You know, there wasn't because it was such a big market. There was just popular films, and I feel like I feel like now, what are we? Twenty five years, twenty well, nearly thirty years on, aren't we? Mm. It's it's sort of it just stands like 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 a it's like Last Man Standing, isn't it? In a way, because it, the quality of it is so high. Um, both the both the the action is fantastic. The unlikely star, the fact that he's you know he's like Cary Grant, isn't he in North by Northwest? He's not he's not a superhero. He's not he's not the guy who's going to take everybody on, but yeah, he does. And um, and it has humour, which is kind of that was the stalwart, I guess, of of action movies, wasn't it? That kind of wink to camera, but it plays it quite straight, doesn't it? I don't know what everyone else thought, but because the humour yeah. never de- never de- <clears throat> degenerates into farce. But it's always there. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those that I always used to describe as an intelligent action movie. Um, I mean, I, I, I saw this. This was this was uh, we we've often talked about, you know, VHS and and memories on that. And uh, this was one of those ones that I think I got as an you could buy X rental copies um, at the video store uh, just prior to it becoming <coughs> blockbuster. Um, and with this, there was also available, I remember HMV, um, which was only in London at the time. I remember I, I, I'd come up to London with a friend 
for a day uh, on the train. And um, there was a, uh, they actually did a, a making of Die Hard, which was essentially like one, an EPK, um, but it was very rare at the time that you could get on, on VHS as well. And uh, it was only about 15, 20 minutes long. It wasn't that great. It wasn't particularly comprehensive. But it was one of the first ones where you could see some behind-the-scenes stuff and you could see Bruce Willis being interviewed about this and, uh, you know, some of the action on set and John McTiernan directing and, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I, remember, I remember I had a copy of that as well as the film. Um, and, uh, yeah, was really into it. And I also remember that... Uh, Spielberg on an interview on television actually at the time cited it as one of his favorite films of, of, of you know screening at that particular time which uh, which of course got my attention as well <laughs> now have any of you guys read or know of the book it was based on I've, I've not um, read it I know it yeah. exists nothing yeah. lasts forever ever by Roderick Thorpe yes mm. I'm, I'm aware of it um well I I wasn't so aware of, of the of the novel. I knew it was based on the book because there's a credit for it at the beginning. But um, mm -hmm. uh, what I, I I did a bit of research and actually the book is a sequel to an, another book called The Detective, which actually mm -hmm. was made into a film in the 1960s that starred Frank Sinatra. That's correct. Yeah. 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 And, and I and I believe he was contractually obligated or whatever to to get first dibs at this role if it was made into a film i believe he was passed yeah, on yeah. it yeah yeah and, and even i think even arnie got a look in before bruce wow for the rock for the uh, yeah i've heard that it, yeah, I, think I mean, it's, I, mean sorry. I think sorry keith i think it's interesting in the novel that uh, that uh, holly uh holly uh, holly Gennaro, uh holly Gennaro mclean uh is is his daughter mm not the wife and oh, Ellis, uh, yeah, and Ellis the, uh, is 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 her boyfriend. So so it's a, so you got this kind of estranged father daughter relationship as opposed to estranged husband and wife, uh, which obviously they changed when, uh, as she was saying, I, I believe they were developing it initially for Arnie to do it. It was going to. It was. Uh, I, I don't know if it's true that it was that it was going to be the same character that he was playing in Predator. Uh, that would have been odd, I think, or, com <laughs> or, uh, or, 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 or Commando. Uh, but uh, yeah, John Matrix. Yippee Kaye, Bennett. I think we'd all be glad that didn't work out, just yes. really because you just would have lost that that kind of everyman uh, quality that. That, that you got with uh, with John McClane certainly in in the first two movies before he starts to edge into you know superhuman territory you know with this, with uh, as each se uh, sequel progressively goes on yeah. there's a, there's a there's a rather there's a rather convenient um comparison between um I can't remember who did it it's on YouTube but won't be able to find but somebody's done the book versus the film oh really oh, yeah I yeah, yeah. see that yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, it's worth checking out. I'll give you a link, and you can put it with the show. Oh, it's uh, it's Cinefix, I think. Did it might, it yeah. might be them. Yeah, 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 and it's and it's just interesting. To, I mean, that, that obviously brings up that element about the daughter stroke wife, and you've got like Argyle is is a complete invention for the film. Yes, um, mm -hmm. but Powell's the same. Um, 
uh, what's it called? Um, the company's a US company, not a Japanese company. That's right. They're an oil company. And the company. name of the character is different as well, isn't it? It's not John McLean. No. It's, it's, it's another name, is it? Is it Joe Ireland or Joe Leyland or something like that, if memory serves? Something like that, but what, yeah. But what's, what's really interesting, though, is some of the, some of the key, key bits which are so lovely in the film are lifted directly from the book. Mm. So some, right. of the key, some of the key action points. So, for example, the machine gun being used to swing across the lift shaft is note for note the book. And the gaffer-taped handgun in the final sequence is note for note the book, which is kind of amazing, really, that given the, <laughs> given the big changes and what you, what you would take, that, that they've clearly... You know, Susan's gone, yeah, I'll have that, I'll have that. <laughs> Interesting. Has anybody seen The Detective just out of interest? No, no. No, I can't say I have. But uh, it kind of makes me want to watch this now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. It's not got a terribly good reputation. Really? But, uh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Though, I just want to say um, that this point that Clive made about the sequels, um, I... I, I for me, when I when I class the films, I kind of like skip over two. Enjoyable as it is, it's just a rehash of the first one and go straight to number three. I think three is the direct sequel to um, to the first one, and um, I, I don't think it's the feats of superhuman. Um, you know, didn't come into it until uh, number four. Once you know, once he starts jumping onto airplanes and taking on tanks, and you know. Oh, don't get me started, yeah. But he can't swear because it's a 12A. Yeah, I mean, for me, this Die Hard, I, I always look at as a trilogy. And the, the last two you can forget as far as I'm concerned, because mm. I just think they're both pants. Um, but I did like, I mean, I actually really like, I've got fondness for Die Hard 2, actually. That was the first one I saw on the big screen. And... Um, I just, yeah, I just really enjoy it. I've got, I, I know what you mean about, you know, where they even joke about it, don't they? About lightning striking twice. And yes, this is how he yeah. spent Christmas last year and all this. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice and all this sort of stuff? But, um, it, it, you know, it, plot holes aside, um, it, it's quite an enjoyable uh, film, I think. And then, of course, the third one, like you said, bringing it in, in as a sort of, uh, revenge film um you know from hans's brother hmm. uh but that that script originally the simon says script was i believe originally written as to be the fourth lethal weapon film oh, okay. um originally <laughs> and it was adapted uh into a diehard script um <laughs> And you know, well, to be honest, it would have been better than the the, the fourth lethal weapon film. That's a whole other podcast. Um, but yes. but uh, yeah, so um, yeah, interesting, interesting. <laughs> and, and and of course, Die Hard Two was also uh, adapted from a novel, completely unrelated to uh, to uh, to the previous novel. Yeah, so, fifty-eight uh, minutes was it? Fifty-eight minutes or something? I think. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. It sort of makes you almost uh, wish that they'd found some other novels to uh, to base the uh, the later sequels on but uh, yeah so guys what do you think of the uh, the 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 story of die hard because it's 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 one of those screenplays that i 
you know, if somebody says, what's a good script to read? You know, I'm interested in being a script writer. What's a good script to read? And I'd say, read the script to Die Hard because it, it does this great job of setting everything up and then just letting it go and it just plays out and every, everything is used. There's no fat. Everybody kind of has their moment. Uh, everything that's introduced at the beginning has a part to play in the entire film. So, you know, do you guys agree with that? Totally, totally. I think one of the, one of the, it's it one of the things of what I caught this time. You know, and it's I think this testimony that to the amount of times I've seen it, you can still see something else because you know I've not watched it before when I'm thinking I'm going to be talking about it on a podcast. So I had to get me sort of try and get me grey matter working in a different way in preparation for this, and I was just enjoying all the setup and payoff. And even the kind of setup and payoff, which is kind of thematic stuff as well as just straightforward. Here's here's something. Look at it. Here it is later. I mean, I think I think one of the finest ones, which is kind of one I've, I've always, I've, for some reason, I only picked it up this time as a as a kind of clever thing. Is it's the um, the setup is when Ellis wants Bruce Willis to look at the watch, which is a scene just him being a dick. Mm. <laughs> and it's the watch that saves the life, you know, that kills Gruber and everything in the in that final moment. So that little set, that, that innocuous setup, which looks like a character moment, has a lovely little payoff at the end, which really, you know, it's like I'm back with John. I'm jettisoning what, what this fancy life I've got in LA, all and also killing the bad guy. All through, and the watch is at the, is at the centre of it, which is kind of a something I'd never noticed before. But it's funny you pick up on that because the watch plays a major part part in the book as well. It, in the book, it's the watch that actually kills Holly because Gruber okay. grabs the watch and she goes over with him. Ah, yes, yes, yes. That's <laughs> interesting. Okay, I need I need to read the book now. It's made me it's made me think. Yeah, I want to watch the uh, I want to read the book and see the differences. <laughs> but it, so, you're right you're right though simon it does it, it's it's fairly instructive in mm. how to show a story rather than tell one yes because certainly certainly watching the bad guys plan it's like a long it's actually a really long time before hans gruber says a word and it's really fa- again it's again watching it, watching it with the podcast in mind you begin to see because you, you kind of hold you, you, <laughs> your eye was holding my breath thinking when's he going to speak now I'm kind of, you know, you're going, I've not watched it for 12 months. So it's like, I'm, I'm sort of refreshing myself <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, he's being, he's being genuinely enigmatic, but also it reflects the fact they all know what they're doing. There is no need to go, right. You stand over there. You do this, you do that. You set the bomb up or whatever it is. There's none of that instruction going on. Everybody knows what they're doing because all the boring stuff was done before they arrived. And all you see is people acting out a plan. Exactly. And you also get to see what the, the different characters are like. So you get the uh, computer engineer, hacker, safe robber, who's very, you know, he's mouthy. And then you get the, um, oh God, I've got to look up the characters. The muscle. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, where are you? Uh, Kyle who's he's very sort of he's the quiet deadly killer one but then he also sets up the relationship between him and his brother who you know his brother's trying to you know cut the um the telephone lines without anybody noticing and he just comes along and starts chainsawing through it so he's having to you know rush 
and you see that kind of interplay between the two brothers without them ever saying a word. Yeah, Carl almost ruins the whole plan with his uh, with his dickish uh, <laughs> moves to try and uh, try and sort of get one over on, on his on his little brother, doesn't he? Yes. Um, and it's like, dude, you, you just you know, what are you doing? You know, but uh, but that's, yeah, makes, that's make, brothers makes for you. Yeah, I was going to say he makes him sweat just for sibling rivalry, <laughs> despite the big despite the big job he's got, which is obviously. It works in terms of where that where it goes and how he how that character develops, but it is it is a weird it's a weird early kind of here's a bit of tension like from from zero to tension for no apparent reason because we don't know these people yet, do we? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I obviously I really agree with how great the screenplay to this movie is. Um, it's for, for me what it does really well is is it constantly. Uh, uh, it sets up kind of little mysteries, and it, and it's full of it's full of very nice kind of reveals. Uh, uh, <coughs> yeah, I mean, having seen the film a lot, obviously it, it, they're no lot you no longer get the big surprise. But there's just something very satisfying about the whole kind of uh, you know it, it's very clearly set up how there's all these different locks to get into the vault. Yeah. Um. And and, and the last one is it's I mean it's made very explicit. You know, you this cannot be cut. You know, internally, it, it can only be cut through external force, and so it sets up this kind of well. How are you going to get around that? And Hans Gruber, who's you know, who is this you know brilliant uh, criminal at the heart? Of this, you know, he, he's like, no, just oh, don't worry about it. To Theo, you know, it's you know, don't worry about it. And so you're you're left to think that it's going to be this big obstacle at the end, and it, and then there's this really nice reveal that he's. He's planned for he's planned for kind of seemingly every eventuality except for, well, you know, the fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, right? Yeah. Mm. So yeah, so oh yeah, I mean, spoilers. Uh, if it's not already, <laughs> if it's not already if it's not already obvious, uh, it, it, we are going to be spoiling Die Hard. So you know, just thought I'd flag that up. Uh, but uh, yeah, it turns out that the uh, that in the event of what they believe a terrorist action is, the FBI playbook is to cut the power to the building, which then frees up, and you get that lovely uh, moment where the music, right, uh, where the classical music rises on the score, and it opens up, and the, and the, uh, the the bad guys get their Christmas moment, don't they? Where it's yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it, it get, they get the lovely reveal. But don't you? Don't, I mean, even just going back back to the opening scene of the movie where. You've got this complete red herring in a way, which is um, he's scared of flying. So you get the you get scared of flying leads you to a bit of a lecture from a guy who's a bit who's a more regular flyer, which is how we end up with no shoes on. Mm. It's sort of an amazing little thing. It's like a, such an intricate formula, but when you see it, it just seems dead natural. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem plotty at all. But yet that has been done to engineer he so he can be barefoot. In a, in a when when push comes to shove, you know it's sort of but the the whole thing starts off with this man's a bit nervous flying, and then yeah. it's like then it's like the gun hanging out the jacket in the pocket, and it's sort of like and then he does this reflective conversation where he says he says yeah I'm a cop been doing it for eleven years, and so we 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 are under no illusion. There's nothing complicated about how he's introduced, is there? No, absolutely. The the, the whole thing with the feet as well 
is that do, do you know is that something that's that's also lifted from from the novel or is that something that um was was added for the screenplay no it's from the novel um that's from the novel as well the okay. uh, the only change they made was that um the the character doesn't wear shoes out of sort of respect for the dead he doesn't want to wear a dead man's shoes and in the film they they made it out that uh, terrorists have dainty feet the small feet yeah <laughs> <laughs> I must yeah, have yeah, this was the line. I, I, I had to kill. I had to kill the only terrorist with feet smaller than my sister. Yeah, 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 line, yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, the script is, you know, everything. Like you said, Simon, in your initial point, is mm. everything that's in there's in there for a reason. Nothing feels expositiony, um, but everything, you know, it, it, it feels like natural dialogue. But it all has a payoff and and you know um, a setup. Um, in a, in, in it, a per- it's very clever. In, in a perverse way, the way the film goes, you could argue, and I know John McClane is the protagonist, but because Hans Gruber's plan is so ex- extravagant, you could argue that Gruber is an anti-hero, and, and, and this is a really bad argument, I understand, uh, and that John McClane is, in fact, the antagonist of Hans Gruber. The film could just, is that as much as it is about John McClane saving the day? Because you've got a man who's executed the most perfect crime without account. The one thing he couldn't account for is the is the um, the estranged husband who, who gets himself lost in the building and starts killing his men. So in a yeah. way, the, f- the film works just like on that basis, on its own. That's, that's its own mini movie within the film. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And and obviously John McClane being, you know, the sort of, um, uh, you know, reluctant hero in, in many respects, because, you know, he didn't go there to stop these guys. He just, you know, ended up in that. And that's the other thing that's wonderful about it is the fact that he's, that he is sort of trapped within that. Okay, it's a big building, but it's still a confined space. You know, oh, he, no, it's, can't, it's, he it's, can't get out of there. And then that, that's... that's yeah, it's a model you know? of, of contain. It's a model for contained thrillers, I suppose. Even though it's obviously quite the huge building, um, yeah. You could argue that it's that it's almost it's almost like a inverted slasher movie with John I, with John I, John I, McClane as as the as the killer, right? Who's going around offing the terrorists one by one in this you know in a in this confined setting. I've heard that. Did I hear that from you, Clive? I can't. I've heard that theory before. Maybe I I don't know that it's it's a particularly original observation, but no, but, but I like it. But, it. But, but I like it. It, it, it. I mean, it is it it kind of works that way. It, it obviously, you know, uh, uh, one of the nice things about Die Hard is even though it's it's a confined setting, it, it it does it sort of opens it up to kind of you know you do get the, these outside agencies coming in. It's not like you know there's no way they can call for help, and it's just down to this one guy. There's outside you know help there but 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 then it sort of subverts your expectations oh okay they you know it's fine the police are here now but they're idiots right except for mm. al you know the, the, the swat team are almost comically uh, like rubbish at their job <laughs> yes especially the one who scratches his hand on a rose and goes ow it's like yeah you're, you're pathetic i mean look what's happening to john mcclain who's having to do all these things and there you are just running along with your gun and you go ow 
wow, Rose. He's pulling glass out of his feet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then if, and, yeah, and then, of course, you've got Dwayne T. Robinson, right? Uh, yes. He's just, he's like the, just really, really, bless him, not very bright, is he? So, An apt cop, yeah. Well, he, he, <laughs> it's because he's just stepped out of, you know, of, of the school where he had the breakfast club and detention, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Because he well, does, I'm, his character feels like it's just his character's just stepped out of the Breakfast Club. <laughs> true, true. Uh, well, was good, the thing I was going to say was with it, with it, going back to the idea that it's a it's a brilliant model for a screenplay, <clears> is that those those first moments, the the sort of first half of Act Two kind of stuff, is Bruce uh, John McClane isn't a killer. John McClane is trying to do everything by the book to get help, and he thinks he can resolve it, and he has his two. He has two attempts that both fit. So the fire, and then it's the, um, and then it's getting the attention of the cop. You know, radioing the police headquarters, and they think it's a joke. And he's like, "Yeah, come and fucking arrest me then," <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But they're both they're both attempts where he's not. He's the, the, what Keith said before the reluctant hero. He's definitely being that because he's doing. He doesn't obviously comprehend the scale and the sophistication of what Gruber is. He just knows there's a bad guy with some other bad guys running around the building. And then when they don't, when the two attempts to get the emergency services fail, which is his kind of tech, his textbook approach, we're then into the realm of he's improvising every step of the way. So for example, the, the lovely, again, it's that element of mystery and then quick payoff when he sort of holds the lift door open and things like that. And then suddenly the next time we see him, is he's peering through the vent of the lift roof, listening to them, and he starts making notes on his arm. And you're like, wow, he's this is this is just beautifully being being drawn now. But the first two bits before then, where he doesn't attack where he's not attacking the bad guys, is him trying to just get 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 bodies on the ground so they can just swamp Hans Gruber and his gang and just end the crime. When obviously when those two things fail, he has no other option. I have to say the the only thing I as a little bit of a nitpick, but uh, when he does get the attention of the police, when he's able to call in on the uh, the radio, and the the two uh, sort of uh, policewomen who pick up the call are so dismissive, you know, I don't know unless they keep getting calls about terrorists attacking Nakaomi building all the time. I don't know. It's it was their their reaction to it seemed to be. It didn't seem to be correct. Okay, there were. Had... Well, no, it, it, no, no fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a fucking pizza? Exactly. I, I love mean, if, that. If, if if somebody had called up and said, it, it wasn't like, "Hi, there's terrorists," blah 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 blah. You know, he's he, he it it sounds like an official call, and they're just going, "Well, you shouldn't really be on here," but yeah, but you're talking yeah. you're talking about telephone versus CB radio, aren't you? And that scene is a, is a brilliant eighties two-way radio conversation because that would have been prevalent and channel nine was the was the channel for only emergency services you or i were not meant to occupy that band and talk on it so the idea that that's his only option because he can't get to a telephone because yeah. pre pre-cell phone days and all they say because she says to him use a landline and give me a call and we'll act on it so it's just, just to say you're not actually meant to exist on this is the point I think? I know it's a yeah. bit ham. It's hammy, but it is. Mm. That's the point I think. Uh, I mean, I, I always took the point to be that. Uh, it, I mean, as you say, Stuart, it's it's for emergency personnel only, and 
but because he's he's on he's on the walkie and he knows the terrorists are listening, right? Uh, he can't identify himself. Mm. So if, if he was if if it was a private line, a private channel, then he could just give his badge number, say who he was, and they would immediately know it wasn't true. It wasn't true. a crack yeah, call. Yeah. But because yeah. he can't, because just going, oh, there's this thing going on, and she's like, well, what are you doing on this line? Who are you? You know, because uh, I, I'm guessing you know the, the form way of using it is. You know, this is, uh, you know, officer, blah, 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 uh, I'm down here, I've got a code, whatever it is, right? But even if, but if, if he even gave, like, you know, a police code, then they'd know who he was or what he was because what he had on his, on his side was, you know, that they didn't know, you know, initially they think he's some kind of security guard and he's, and he's, he's you know, this whole time there's this big sort of, you know, suspense thing of, of when they're going to find out that Holly is his wife and use that against him. Yeah, because yeah. because the, the Ellis the Ellis confrontation is is is, pro- is probably my favourite bit because the assumption with that tension as it's built and built and built that John McClane's identity is going to be revealed and therefore Holly's in trouble. You're immediate even watching it many times. You st- I still watch that scene with. He's going to grass them up. He's coked out of his head. He's going to grass them up. And yeah. he, plays, he plays the random old friend routine, which is, which is kind of like, he's a dick, but he's actually not that much of a dick. He realises yeah. Holly would be in trouble, but he thinks, he thinks arrogantly in his coke-fueled mind he can talk John McClane down. So again, we get another level to that, when will Holly's relationship to John and John's relationship to Holly get revealed? It's one of my favourite yeah. scenes, that. Yeah, and and also the whole thing <coughs> I mentioned at the beginning about the, you know, um, you know she's down as Holly Gennaro rather than McLean and all that. That that all kind of works into it as well, doesn't it? Because um, obviously, you know, the fact she's used her maiden name, which pisses him off, but at the same time, it buys them some time that way as well. So um, in terms of being that sort of perfectly joined up script, you know, all those little things work, don't they? Um, well, you know, just, really flat, well. just flat, just flattening the family photograph. Mm. What, a, what, yeah. a, what a what a really what a really simple thing that then becomes Gruber's reveal, doesn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. It genuinely is amazing. It's like you could almost forget <laughs> that that's even happened, and then suddenly, well, like there you go. He's got the he's got everything he needs. Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, it's an amazingly um, uh, you know tight script for the for the genre and. Um, you know, it's just interesting that, uh, um, you know, it spawned all these sequels, etc. but also a lot of films that have tried to be like diehard films as well over the years. You know, it's, it's it, well, to the point where they've actually used it, you know, in the sort of Hollywood pitching, they've sort of said things like, you know, die hard on a train or die hard on a ship or, you, you know, they've, they've actually used it as, as a sort of model. <laughs> for, do, for, do you, do you, guys, do you guys have a, have a, I mean, I've just said what mine is. Do you guys have a favorite sort of moment in the film that sort of makes it for you? Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the line didn't go dead. It's just a <laughs> good point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll step in with like a little moment that always makes me smile because it's yeah, go on. it's sort of indicative of. I mean, we talk about how tight it is, but actually, it's sort of the film's a bit longer than you expect because mm. they they managed to cram so much in in terms of all these side characters and and sort of little kind of bits of business. 
So I, I enjoy the way that, that, that even the sort of smallest kind of henchman characters get a little bit. And the bit that always that I always like is the is the henchman with the sweet tooth. Oh, it's genius. <laughs> and, it, it, it's, and it's literally, he doesn't even get any dialogue. It's like everyone is being uber professional and doing and going to their station, getting set up for you know for, for, for when when the the police are going to arrive and everything, and you know and, and he gets to his station and then and he sees there's all this candy under the counter and then he and he looks around <laughs> and then he, he sneaky takes some and it's just this little <laughs> it's just this little bit and and it, and it doesn't you know I mean, I mean obviously they they are thieves but it is you know it's. Uh, yeah, it, it, that, that one that one always make, makes me chuckle. And, and, and he also, bit of visual storytelling. Yeah, because he because he he ends up scoffing it because he has, he ends up being at, at point, doesn't he? Really, so he fires the first shot at the SWAT team while he's just finishing off stuff in his face. It's like the, <laughs> for all of their planning, it's like one little you know you've got John McClane is like his macro problem, and then just down there he's like, oh yeah, he's got a bit of a sweet tooth and he shouldn't have probably been near the chocolate counter. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's funny to think that little moments like that now would be lost in in other films. You you just that just wouldn't happen. That that would be like the first thing that would get cut. And it's, it's such a shame that the, those little sort of character moments, those little things that make you chuckle, just they just don't have in in films these days. I don't know whether that's strictly true. I mean, it's it's well, the, the when we cut when it comes to sort of. If if we take this a similar kind of film that's made today, the those sort of those sort of beats for especially when it comes to the bad guys, um, they would be lost. That might have been like a, a a trait that the hero would have. That might be something that the hero would be given, but not to uh, one of the supporting bad guys. I mean, the bad guy bad guys these days that you know that. That they're not that memorable. I mean, the okay, going going on a bit of a tangent, but the thing about the Marvel films is the heroes in it are great, but the villains are always boring. They always just want to take over the world or take over the universe. They they always have a similar plan, and they there's they never seem to, they just seem to be there to 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 be defeated. But the but the point that this is the whole point with Dyer though, isn't it? That it is its cleverness is in the fact that it's he's about Hans Gruber. And John McClane fucking it up. Not mm. not John McClane being a hero and always built to save the day, which obviously a, a Marvel movie is about. Here's some people that can save the day. Give them a problem that means the world's in danger, so they will save the day. You know, and and, and ultimately, John McClane couldn't save the world, but he can save his marriage, which is all the film is in the end. It's mm. a it's a big it's a big dramatic choreographed action film that ends with his marriage is saved. We're not thinking. We're not thinking. He saved the day. We're thinking he's back with his wife. She decks the TV presenter, and he he he. Richard writes... Thornburg. I love Richard Thornburg. <laughs> <laughs> that character's hilarious. <laughs> well, that 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 whole side. I was that's, uh, t- just taking off Clive's initiative there. That whole sidebar again, and mm. maybe thinking what Simon's saying. It probably is true. It's like we end up going from the police, the the, the journalist guy who wants to cover the story. To then, meanwhile, going back to the same studio that we've left behind to see a rather camp, disorganised presenter <laughs> on the one hand, and and the professional who taught, who's written a book about what's it called <laughs> terrorist terrorist hostage hostage, hostage terrorist. terrorists yeah 
It's like it's like this again is is an amazing piece of detail that we go. Meanwhile, back at the TV studio, yeah. Where yeah. Else, which I guess is I guess is early days of what we now understand as being twenty four seven news. Mm. Yeah, kind, yeah. You know, you think you think Night Nightcrawler is just about the guys that go and follow the radio signals from the police, whereas this is this is like them going. You see the presenter going, no, let me go, let me go. And they're going, well, I don't want you to go. And, like, can you imagine a TV station not letting a TV crew go and cover a hostage? It's like, it's, mm. it, it's, 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 it, it'd be tantamount to throwing your hands up and giving up, wouldn't it? Whereas yeah. this film, with this film, it's like, it's like, no, you, you can't go. And then it's like, all right, then take, take van number five. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean, you Eat know, Harvey. There are some great, mo I mean, again, in terms of moments in the film that sort of make make me chuckle all the time, um, just things like the, uh, you know, you've got uh, FBI special agents Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> Not related. The, yeah, Not related. Bit, yeah. it, well, the bit I love is when he rings through, he calls through on his radio and says, uh, you know, this is, this is, um, uh, Special Agent Johnson, and he goes, "You don't hear what they say," but he goes, "No, the other one." <laughs> and I just think, you know, little things like that make me chuckle every time. You know, every time I see the film, you know, know it's coming, but I just find those sort of moments really well, good. Well, in the, script. The, the, the white the white guy gets to, to start shooting the rifle, and he says, "Oh man, it's like Saigon." And the, the other guy goes, I was in junior high. And yes. just like the, so you've, got like this guy, you've got this mad action scene and a, and a, and a pithy put-down at the same time. Yeah, yeah. No, and, I'm, and I mean, the action scenes in, in this film are just, you, you know, fantastic, um, you know, even by today's standards. But I, but I think, um, you, you know, kind of, kind of on Simon's point a little bit, um, one of the things, if you like, that, that's so great about this film, and I think... The second one has <coughs> two, but unfortunately, this is where it's kind of, in my opinion, gone off tangent in the latter films of the franchise is the fact that, you know, we, we've talked in length about, you, you know, um, John McClane, you know, he, yes, he's a cop, he's a trained cop and all this, but he is sort of a, an ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, he is not the hero that's going to, you know, save the world kind of thing. He's just there to save his wife in both the first film's cases, yeah? But when you do get to the latter films, he has almost become like a superhero, you know? <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of, um, you know, to me, it doesn't even feel like the same character. I mean, we've got the character that you, you absolutely said at the beginning, you know, is, is, is scared of flying in the first movie, and then Ooh. by the fourth movie, he's actually a helicopter pilot. And it's like, what? This is the guy who was scared of flying, period. Yeah. You know? Uh, so doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't even doesn't feel he... like it's quite the same character anymore. I was going to say, to me he, anyway. <laughs> doesn't he literally face off a jet plane on a highway on, in the fourth one? Oh, yeah. 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 He, like, leaps on it like he's Iron yeah. Man or something. You know? Yeah, 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 <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah, kind yeah. of... You know, awful. I think that the, the last two to me have been terrible. Well, the the thing is about the sequels is they've all suffered from having to sort of uh, escalate the the what what the thing is he's saving. So the first one he saves a building, the second one he saves an airport, the third one he saves New York, the fourth <laughs> one he saves the West Coast, and then in the fifth one he saves Russia. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and it's like, exactly. well, where can they go with the sixth one? The planet. 
yeah. but you know, this is it. This is it. It, it. I mean, obviously, it's 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 become a vehicle for um, for Bruce Willis. Whereas, if you look at, I mean, it's a different tone of movie. But if you look at um, what Taylor Sheridan's done with the sequel for Sicario, he's yeah. not he's not writing Emily Blunt's character in because she's not part of the sequel. No, okay. it's a sequel to the Sicario world, mm-hmm. but with so, a different I mean, character. Yeah, with mm. a different storyline to do. A, you know, a bit like the way that um, the guys that wrote The Wire sort of move between series where they go, this story will be focusing on this character. And then the second one, you're like, that character won't even be in it hardly. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I, really, I really like that guy. And now he's just a, a bit part. And I think I think sequels, obviously, and star power make make the process of of developing them about who's the star. Whereas I think, as Clive said in, in the beginning, Bruce Willis was kind of in between days, and at that featurette you talked about, um, Keith, that's uh-huh. on my that, that's an extra on my DVD, and you've got probably the last vestiges of Bruce Willis with with humility, you know, with a bit of humility because yeah, because he's because he's renowned now, isn't he, for being a pain in the ass? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean. I mean, let's talk of let's let's talk about that a little bit actually. While while we're on that, I mean, you know, this whole Bruce Willis thing. Um, I when the when the first film came out, and as I said, I was you know obviously young and watched it on um, VHS, but uh, I I hadn't actually really followed Moonlighting particularly, although I was aware of it, and uh, I think I had seen the the first date movie and. Um, you know, Bruce Willis was kind of this guy that all I really sort of knew about him at the time was, uh, you know, he did comedies. Uh, he was he was married to Demi Moore and uh, he, he released a, he, he released an album, <laughs> you know, all kind of in that same. I mean, that sort of late 80s, early 90s period for Bruce was a was a real busy time. But, um, you, you, you know, for him to obviously his career since as he has gone on to be you know, obviously taken as a serious actor, but also um, gone on to be a bit of a, an action hero type uh, film star as well. And, it, and it's quite interesting because, you, you know, Die Hard at the time, you know, he really wasn't seen as that. He was seen as more a, a, a sort of, I guess, a comedy actor. Well, he was, just, um, he was an all-round entertainer. You just described someone that does everything. Whereas- yeah. I'd I'd say that Die Hard is the birth of him as a movie star, you know. Right. The, yeah. The, the 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 film he did with Bassinger was hardly hardly propelled him anywhere. It was just like, yeah, we've seen because he. It, it, I mean, it's hard to remember Clive. I don't know what you remember. He was massive because of Moonlight. You know, obviously Sybil Shepherd is was hardly was hardly an unknown that he was opposite. So he it made him a star opposite her. You know. Yeah. It. it I definitely remember that, you know, because I was a big fan of the show. I mean, I also, I also remember I, I bought the album. I bought the Return, yeah, yeah. Of, Return Bruno. of Bruno. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they made like a sort of mockumentary about it as well, if if I remember right. And uh, you had other actors like Michael J. Fox and stuff talking about this character of Bruno as if he was some sort of film legend. But it was actually, you know, Bruce Willis on this album. So it was kind of a, a really weird sort of... Um, <clears throat> multimedia type thing that they did and uh <laughs> yeah quite quite bizarre now you look back on it and he even did a song on that album about james bond called secret agent man he did yes yeah, yeah. well look, so, I mean, under, under the boardwalk that which was the big hit from that time but predates the release of um of die hard i mean i'm sure oh, it does it been, 
yeah, yeah, I think Stuart's right that that it was um, uh, it it was like you know off the back of his moonlighting fame that that the music got released rather than yeah, off the back totally. of Die Hard. So. Oh right, okay. I must admit, for me, I was a little bit sort of unsure of the chronology of all. And of weirdly, that, weirdly, it all blends into one. But weirdly, yeah. that but the big. I mean, this is going to be a real probably sound like a crass analogy, but. The end of the 80s was was the end of the action movie hero, the Arnie and the Stallone in the kind of, you know, grunting, monosyllabic kind of character. And Die Hard existed in that period. So I think that's why it kind of didn't get the plaudits it got at the time that it now has now, because it's lasted. And if you think about, like, the early 90s was kind of like hair metal and action movies in America tanked because grunge and alternative came along and then tarantino and kevin smith and richard Linklater came along and went we're going to do these much smaller movies so and then people went to watch them which obviously as we as we now know through the film industry thing is like the likes of the weinstein company were born out of the success of that you know what, yes. what we what we have now in 2016 as the industry was born out of that sea change away from big budget blockbusters that could always rely on a, on the daft daft mass mass audiences just gone out and buying VHSs. It didn't have to worry too much about its cinema. Um, yeah. But then there was the sea change after that. You know, people would have no appetite. They'd got tired of it. It had become a joke. You'd have, you'd have the spoof versions and everything. And so, and it is weird to think that Die Hard exists in that time because it, 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 is, it is better than the rest. The action is as ludicrous in the end. If you, if you take apart what happens in the last 20 minutes, it's bloody ridiculous. That he's that he's, rem- he's he's alive. Never mind, got all his limbs in one piece. But, <laughs> yeah, but, well, that, well, but, that, but that doesn't matter, does it? No, I mean, I mean, interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, with the, some of the names you mentioned there, I mean, shortly after the success of of the first couple of Die Hard movies, um, you know, Bruce Willis himself went into business with both Stallone and Schwarzenegger, and they had the whole um, Planet Hollywood franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the yeah, three yeah. of them that were the the kind of action heroes that, uh, that, that that sort of you know spun that little enterprise for a while. Um, well, well it, it, in, my, in my in my head, Keith, because it's like you know this is what the, the really big start of my formative years, as it were, is uh-huh. this was the first they were the first kind of what I would consider sort of mainstream stuff that I was rejecting. Where you're going, I want something different, and that stuff is just shit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, was, I mean, and it was like a wholesale rejection of it. In a way. Yeah, I mean, it was in- it's interesting because I obviously I grew up with the Stallone and, and Schwarzenegger stuff and really liked that. But for me, I always looked at the the Die Hard movies or the first couple of Die Hard movies and the Lethal Weapon movies. Obviously, I'm a big Richard Donner fan, as I mentioned quite often on these podcasts. But I I kind of looked at those as being the action movies that were <coughs> slightly slightly better quality if you know what I mean, than the, than the regular action movies uh, well, of that era. Does that I make agree. sense? No, I agree totally. And what, what's also, you mentioned about the 12A restriction on the, the last, on the later sequels is that obviously this is an 18, which I guess would be what? In a, is it 18 in America or is it? Oh, I guess in America. NC-17. NC-17, yeah. NC yeah. So, yeah. so they, were, they, were, they were action movies that weren't, for, weren't meant to be four-quadrant movies. They were... For adults, yeah, as the franchise got bigger, the, the grab for the audience got wider. So therefore the action got lighter 
even though it was got more ridiculous and bombastic, it actually mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't as interesting because those fight scenes in in Diad are are pretty violent, you know. And oh yeah, and they're wonderfully yeah. coordinated. Obviously, like like what, the glass in the foot is quite it's a real nice moment as well. It's sort of it's it's a kind of like you you get to have a breather in a real sense because something bad has happened to him, as opposed to the film has a breather. <laughs> yeah. Well. Also, I just want to sort of make a point as well, as you brought up the sort of the latter sequels. Um, I think some of the blame has to fall on Bruce Willis's um, shoulders as well. Um, from all reports of I've, I've heard about the making of the fourth one, um, the they had like they had a script written, but it was always sort of Bruce Willis who was kind to, you know, he saw himself as the protector of Die Hard and he just wouldn't let them do what they wanted to do. And I think partly that's the reason why that's, that film comes across as a bit of a mess is because um, before that point, when he was making the Die Hard films, especially with John McTiernan, I- I'm sure he didn't turn around to him and say, I'm not going to do that, or I think you're wrong. And it, it's very much Bruce Willis being, I don't know, from from what i've heard about him especially of late if he if you're not a director that he believes in or respects then he will walk all over you i mean just look at what happened to kevin smith on cop out right but, but, yeah. if, you, but if you but if you look at the timeline though simon it's like it's like we're in a different world by four you're in 2007 so we're not really it's it's it, it, it bruce willis is he's on another planet literally at that point compared to where he was in 88 Oh, and in uh, 20 indeed, years but, on. But yeah. the, the thing is, though, when you, 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 all of us know here now, making a film, it, it's all about people coming together and trying to, you know, help make one person's vision or, or a group vision. But when you have one person who comes along and says, I ain't doing that, they ain't die hard, then you, you know it's going to be a real struggle. Mm. Because at the end of the day, you know, I, I, me personally, I, I do like interaction from actors and, and crew. So if somebody has a good idea, I will listen to them. But at the end of the day, it's, it, it is up to me if that happens or not. So I, I can't, I, I tell you what, if, if I had been on that film, I probably would have walked because the, the feeling that I couldn't get anything done because of an actor just kept saying, well, that ain't die hard. <laughs> you know, that would be absolutely frustrating. And, you know, and it doesn't make for a good film. But it's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, I've not read any reports on it, but, you know, Bruce is renowned across all fronts to be, you know, when he does the press junkets, he decides to do what he wants when he wants. You know, he he lives he does live in a mo- in his own movie star bubble, and he's obviously he's earned that right, and it's a rare thing. And the box office he brings comes with the 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 baggage that you're talking about, I suppose, because you could get somebody in who'd be much more malleable and easier to direct, but the film wouldn't get seen by people. And we've seen what happens with with franchises where they change the main person with the Bourne series. Oh, oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, also the fact that that they shouldn't have really made four or five anyway. I mean, the it, it, as a trilogy, it it kind of works, even though you could skip over the second one. 
and just have and just have it too. Yeah. Don't don't you, I'd argue that probably Bruce Willis would agree with you. <laughs> you know, and so he's like going, "We're just doing this for the sake of it. There's no there's no real reason to do this." <laughs> well, I mean, the the thing is, he he can he can he can bring in a good performance. I mean, just look at him in Looper. Mm. I think Looper is kind of like the last great film he's been in. Recently, he he just seems to turn up in really low budget stuff that, you know, they they they've hired him because it, he's Bruce Willis. I think the last big film he did was uh, Red Two. Well, Die Hard Year One is in is in development according to IMDb, so it ain't finished. Mm. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, the, the, I also think. Um, worthy of, of mention here as well uh particularly as uh you know sadly at the beginning of this year we we lost him um is the fact you, you know alan rickman is so great in this film and i guess this is the film that sort of made him even though he'd been acting for a long time up to this point this was the film that kind of uh you, you know made him a, a, a worldwide name um because of the success of this the, the, the featurette on, on the DVD, sort of, when it's billing him, it goes, and they got, uh, was it, they got um, the British theatre actor, Alan Rickman, so that's how he's described. <laughs> he's, not, he's, not yeah. described any, he's not described as anything else. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he's fantastic in this, isn't he? He really is, you, you know, like, like you said, he's almost, uh, I like your, your sort of analogy where you look at him as, as almost like the protagonist in... in, in, in a certain respect, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he, he just comes across calm and in control and just really, <coughs> yeah, he just really works. I think in this film as, as, as the, as the villain, what do, what do you guys think? It, 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 it's, also, sorry. Uh, is this also the start of that trope of having the British villain in the American uh, movie or, or was this like, was that before that? No, it, it's, it's been a while. It's, it's, I think having, I, I think it may have been the first one to actually have him as the main villain, but the, the, the British has been, uh, you know, part of the bad guy crew has been there for ages. I mean, look at all the, um, the officers in Star Wars films. They're all British. <laughs> oh, that's I mean, true. Yeah. Grand Moff Tarkin, you know, <laughs> Peter Cushing. But, but, you know. but, but he is, but he isn't playing a Brit, is he? He's no, you're playing, right. He's, yeah. He's, yeah, he's, he's playing he's a German. German. Yeah, yeah, it, and that's it, also. I, it could be, it could be the start of the Euro trash. It's when Europeans started becoming uh, the bad guys. Yeah, because it is, it's, I mean, I know it's not Europe, it's not, it's, it's sort of European ones removed, but you've got like South African bad guys and lethal weapon, haven't you? Mm, so it's like, yeah, it, it's that. in the second one, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, it, you know, you think, I'm trying to think now, which, which, when do we get the middle, the Middle East is a sort of, um, isn't a trope for a while yet as the bad guys. And prior to that, you think of all the action movies we watched before this one, Russians were the bad guys all the time. Yes. Yeah. In the kind of, in the slew of kind of Chuck Norris, Arnie and, um, and Stallone stuff. Well, exactly. I mean, look at Rambo three. You had the Afghans with the good guys. Yeah. 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 No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But, mm. I, but I think it, but I think it, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that mate, then in 1987, there are, that Hans Gruber character is essentially riffing on the Bad Aminoff type thing. So there really was a, a level of stability. And I think at one point, they mention Ireland and when he starts reading off the names oh, of the, yeah. um, of the <laughs> yeah. terrorist groups he wants Asian Dawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 
we 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 did you know that 80, 87 88 is pre berlin wall so mm. we did you know thinking of it in 2016 we lived in much simpler times in geopolitical sense than than what that film is because also you know the japanese i mean there's this this sort of there's kind of slight digs stroke satire about how yeah we tried pearl harbor and now we sell you cassette machines mm. You know, we didn't. I think. I think the 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 CEO of of the corporation says at one point. I think he says the line, something like that, where it's yes, yeah. We failed at Pearl Harbor, and now we sell you cassette machines. I, when, I did when, when he's, when he's yeah. getting. I was just going to say on, though, when when he says the line, it's a bit incomprehensible. It's kind of like I I don't know if they kind of played it if it's the delivery or if they played it down in the soundtrack because you can never quite make out what he says. Well, it's kind of just small talk while mm. while he's while yeah. he's showing Bruce Willis where to go and take his shoes and socks off. So it's kind of <laughs> it's a weird bit of thing. To, it's a weird thing to say, and you know, it's yeah. not like oh, the, we- the weather's mild for this time of year would be the usual small <laughs> talk. And instead, he makes he makes a light joke about Pearl Harbor, yeah. you know, and, and and says, you know, look now Japan's, which obviously. Ten years later, Japan's economy stagnates, and they're no longer the rulers of the first world. Mm. You know, China's now the first, you know the ruler of the first world, and it's it's kind of a we it is it does capture a moment, I think, in terms of the way the world is. Mm. Yeah, the product of or its world, time. Or world was also because I was joking. Aside from this, getting rid of this podcast, there was a, a friend of mine, uh, a screenwriter friend of mine, David Lemon, who. Um, we're joking about what you don't see anymore that you see in eighties films, and this one has it all because you've got date. You've got John McClane smokes. Yes. Now, two thousand and sixteen. If you smoke, you're a bad guy. No good <laughs> people. No good people or kind-hearted people can be developed into that character if they start off with a cigarette in their mouth. Whereas in nineteen eighty-seven, he sparks yeah. one up in the he sparks one up in the airport. And yeah, like, and the, the same in Lethal Weapon as well. Mark yeah. Lennox, played by Mel Gibson, smokes all the way through it as well. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's and got it, a death wish as well, obviously. But. Yeah, but, like, but, but, but John McClane's in, in, in the limo with Argyle and he, and he sparks up in the car and he doesn't even say, do you mind if I smoke? And you're like, this is like, again, it's like you're in a time warp when you see attitudes are so different. Mm. Oh, yeah, drinking and driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Argyle's in the back of the uh, limo, and he's just drinking <laughs> bottles of uh, of I don't know whiskey. You know, their 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 spirits emptying the drinks cabinet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then he just he he drives them home afterwards. You know, <laughs> I know he got sobered up very quickly when he found out there was a a terrorist situation going on above him, but. Uh... <laughs> I just want to know where the disco lights came from because he's sitting there. And you can just see these flashing lights behind him. It's like, wow! <laughs> I didn't know it was like a party bus. A sec, Clive. Just thinking of something you said earlier about the, yeah. the, the, the the um the, the length of the film being being a bit sort of like a trick of the eye. Really, you forget how it's a, it's a two hours plus movie. What do you what? And, and I was conscious of that when I put it on, and I realised there's you know the bit the bit where he's kind of ha- he has a whole kind of I'm heartbroken, I'm beat, I can't win. And they really stretch that bit out. And it's the only bit of the film, I think, where if, if you could argue it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it shouldn't be there, but in terms of the speed and the, the leanness of the rest of the movie, it stands out because it's a real kind of like, woe is me moment. And they really prolong it. I don't know what you thought of that. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think it's it's kind of partly as a result of them uh, it, it, having to introduce some like major characters almost halfway through the movie, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you know, you know, in conventional, uh, you know, screen storytelling, you know, the idea, you know, the idea is that you, you introduce everyone who's important in the in the first third, right? Mm. Um, in the fir- or the first act, even uh, if you look at it in terms of three act structure, but in this one, we don't we don't meet, you know, uh, we don't meet Sergeant Al Pal uh, till after till we're about an hour in. True, you know, true, we're, we're, yeah, yeah. you know, we don't meet a lot of the outside sort of people that are going to become important. Um, you know, uh, uh, like Richard Thornburg, you know, uh, he, he, again, he doesn't turn up till later. Uh, uh, but but I think you do need that sort of breather, right? You do need mm. the sort of character bit because that's sort of, it, it's like, uh, you know, John McClane has gone through this sort of transformation Oh. And, and we need to see. We need hear him saying to Al, "She's never, she's never heard me say I'm sorry." Oh. We, we we need that sort of to see that he's changed before he can sort of win the day, right? Oh. Now, I mm. I believe they actually did cut that out from the film and then put it back in. I believe there was no I, I way. There was no yeah. Way. I I I'm I'm not sure. Don't quote me, but I believe that they did, and it just it it, it kind of ruined it, it kind of ruined the the pace of the film and stuff, and they put it back in. I know there was something about that scene where they actually had to fight to keep it in. No, because right. I, I would I would say that that it, it, it's like the. Because it's so different from the rest of the movie, it feels like that's the heart of the film in the end. You know, you've mm. you've had all these clues and you understand that the good guys have all got hearts, but they've got complicated lives and it's just got a bit of a mess. But underneath it all, they love each other and and it, and given what like Klaus says, what he goes through to get to this point, where I'm guessing they're basically saying without him saying it, I think I'm gonna die. So I better mm. <laughs> I better get this out in the open. So, so she knows what I really meant, even though I fucked up and stayed in stayed in New York while you moved over here. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I actually think that's a great bit of acting on Bruce's part. I think it's, you know, he delivers that whole, you know, bit, that whole monologue, one could say, um, over the radio. You know, he, he delivers that really well. And I just, yeah, I, I think that's a, I think it is a really important moment to have in the film, even though it does absolutely sort of slow things down for a few minutes but um i i think it's i think it's the breather that the audience needs uh, I, I think it works really nicely in this mm. yeah i mean i guess you could argue that do we need the sergeant uh, do we need al telling him i shot a kid do we need that yes. that, that stuff because it yes. pays off yes. later doesn't it pays it? off I, later I, I, when I know, he shoots I know it pays off but but that's but the payoff is a bit is ridiculous no the, the, no, you know, the, because it's it, it's no, a, it's a Carl coming back from the dead in a in a well, like a say, movie. That's, that's, that's in the book. As that's well. in the book as well. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's you okay. know, uh, and the thing is, we I I know he was hanging up there from the chain and everything, but we we didn't hear a crack. <laughs> we didn't hear his neck go, or you know, and it it what makes that end moment, even though it's a bit over the top, what what forgives it is the fact that Al takes him out and you know it's such a I, 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 you know I, I, but it's such a big thing for him to do because he more or less retired off the street because he shot a kid and I, if you I, didn't I, know I, I, that I, I, then that that it, it just it wouldn't have the same impact 
I, I, I agree it wouldn't. And, and it's just another indication of how everything, how everything does pay off it in this movie and how it's a very well scripted film. But I'm just saying, I, I'm saying, could you take that whole thing out and have it still work? And I think, yes, you could. I think you could, yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of, if you don't have him emerging out of the bit, it's, it's almost like, um, like a horror film. It's going back to your slasher analogy, it's, yeah. almost like, it's almost like the carry out, hand out the grave. It's, it's Jason jumping out of the water. That's all that is. It's just a last-minute scare, isn't it? In a, in a, in a, not true. I know it pays off Powell's character, but ultimately it is just one last moment that they've kind of gone, you're not ready for this, so I'm going to throw it at you. Yeah, I I was just thinking um, as we were talking about the introduction of characters and stuff. If if all the main players in this film had been introduced at the beginning, do you think the film would have then played more like a disaster film than an action film? Yeah, well, I guess you'd get what's what's the um, what's the Steve McQueen film with a burning building? A towering um, Inferno. Towering Inferno. But I mean, yeah. the, the the template of a disaster film is you introduce everybody at the beginning, and so you. As you watch the film, you're wondering which character is going to die and which one's going to survive. And if you introduced all these characters at the beginning, then you'd get that sense as well, wouldn't you? But I think, but I think the police and the FBI are only ciphers for how good Gruber is. They're not really characters. Oh no! But I'm just saying, if 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 because they're, they're the late, if, they're the later ones, though, aren't they? They're all yeah, they're well, all versions to. They only help to propel it. They don't. Yeah, but I'm just I'm just saying that if they had followed the script writing rule book and introduced all the main players at the beginning, that it would have played. It would feel more like a disaster film the way they set up a disaster film than they would say an action film. Sure, sure, sure. But like yeah. I say, I think I think that that you know, as a story, it is. It, th- those characters are important to show how clever Gruber is, not yes. how, yeah. not how integral they are. They oh, yeah, knowing yeah. knowing they exist and yeah. who they are. Yeah, and clearly, you know, it's it's um, it's you know, I guess the only one, I guess, it, it, to support your argument would be the TV reporter. Probably you might have you might have had him at the airport or something doing a doing a thing to camera and had him pull Bruce to one side or something, you know, and make <laughs> yeah, him be a pain in the ass, you know, and then you've introduced him, you know what I mean? It's like, that yeah, would have been, no. I guess, the thing to do. It, they, but, they get, they all get introduced at the right time when they're needed. Yeah. And, and in a way it proves that you, in a way, it, 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 if you take them as all characters, then it proves that if the story is working, when people appear, that's when the stories needs them. I mean, Tarantino always argues this about his work. He says, People ask me about non-linear and linear. He goes, I just show you stuff when I think it's the right time to show you. Mm. Which is, that's what Susa does so well, doesn't he, with the script? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's a shame that the, as as we talk about sort of, you know, if, if, you, if you follow the sort of free act structure and you follow, you know, uh, Rob McKee's book, you know, that, that you would have to introduce... Um, you know the main characters, the main players in the action right at the beginning, and it, this I guess this film goes against that book in a way of of, of telling a no, story. No, I, I don't think it does. I think I think uh, there's, some, there's no? some extraneous there's extraneous characters, but the people that are the skeleton of story all happen within fifteen minutes. You, you've got everybody you need you need within fifteen minutes. Yeah, it's true. You got you got the main antagonists and you've got the main protagonists. And you've got and you've got the central kind of what is this story about is is set up very very quickly. It's the reason why 
it it's it's sort of cited in so many screenwriting books as like oh look at this one because it because it hits all the beats in quote unquote the right timing you know like by page 10 this happens by page 30 of the script this happens which is a really reductive way of looking at screenwriting i think mm. but it you know it, it because it is a brilliantly written and hey let's give the guy credit directed movie yes it's uh you know it it, it all comes together in in and is of a piece i mean one thing i wanted to sort of bring up is so uh, what do you think about diehards like tonally because you've got uh, you've got the kind of um you've got the john mcclain story right and which is you know which is played you know like beautifully and and, and but you know like it's very great it's, it's it's grounded i mean You've got the nice thing about him talking to himself and constantly monologuing. Mm-hmm. But think, but never, think but, John, think John, think John. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but uh, you know, come to the party, have a few laughs, you know, yeah, all, yeah, all yeah. that good stuff. But, but it, never, it never goes, for me, it never goes over into sort of like overly broad comedy. But then you get some of these side characters, they're like stereotypes or like it, it's almost like they could be like... Uh, you know, similarly to, I guess, to sort of something like Robocop, where you've got like, they're almost sat- satirical, you know, there's like, they're digs, you know, you've got the kind of like, uh, like newsman who's just all about the story, or you've got the cop uh, who, who eats, who, well, he doesn't eat donuts, but, you know, he like, he's, <laughs> likes his junk food, um, you know, and, or, or you've got Ellis, who, who is this sort of like the, the yuppie asshole. Um, I mean, you know, and even like you know, Argyle as the sort of like fresh prince uh, of 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 chauffeurs. You know. <laughs> yes, but do, do you know what I mean? A, a lot of the, a lot of that is sort of almost played semi comically, even though it's a very serious sort of uh, you know life or death situation for the people inside. And uh, and Alan Alan Rickman is is playing it sort of dead straight. He's not doing a sheriff in Nottingham uh, performance here. No, he's not. No. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about that sort of tonally? The sort of almost two different types of kind of acting going on in the movie. I think it clings on to it clings on to its serious tone for grim death at times when it when it diverts itself. But I think it I think it does it beautifully because it never does it for too long. And every time we get back to John or Hans, we're grounded in the, the real tone of the movie. So everyone else, it's like, it's like, you know, we expect the police to save the day. So what's the best way for them not to save the day? It's for them to all be a bunch of dickheads, for them to be gung-ho and just not know what they're doing. And, I mean, let's, I mean, do, do you imagine a film in 2000, I mean, I, 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 it sounds like a mad comparison, but given it's a heist movie, you look at something like Triple Nine, I don't know if you have any of you guys have seen that one. No. Yes. No. You know the way that is set up. There's no way you could have um, the idea that the pol- basically that the police and the FBI work to a rule book, so therefore they're very predictable, and we can work around the way they work. You know, isn't isn't as this is heavily satirized, I think, in Dyer, the way that Gruber's character is ready for everything they do. So therefore, they don't need to be anything more than stereotype because that's what Gruber is expecting, isn't he? I suppose. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I've always looked at it as kind of a um, 
you know, a, a serious action movie, but with some wonderful comedic moments that, that, that work. And um, I, I think, you know, some of these things that may come across looking at it now we're older and we understand filmmaking and story structure and things of that nature better. You, you know, th things that come across maybe as a bit cheesy or a bit stereotypical. Um, I think that's more just because of the way we look at it now. I mean, I think maybe back then, um, you know, some of those tropes might not have been as common. I, 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 I don't know, but I, I've always... I've always looked at it as a, you know, as, as a tonally serious movie, but has some wonderful, you know, humor moments throughout it that, that work really well without being sort of too, too winky at the camera, you know? Um, yeah, it's a piece of entertainment at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, a, it's an entertaining film. And it's, it's one of the things I think that adds to the longevity of this film. I mean, as you say, it's, it's been, you know, 28 years ago that this film came out and we're talking about it today and it, it just sort of rides that fine line of uh of sort of serious and comedy and it, it, it just it, it just works so well so that you know that for all those moments where the, there's peril and your you know the suspense there's also comedy to to relieve that and even though the that some of the characters are stereotypical, they're still kind of enjoyable. You always sort of, you know, it's always good to see when they turn up and, you know, you, you always enjoy those sort of moments. I mean, we, you know, we're laughing, talking about, you know, the two Johnsons and, you know, the, <laughs> the, the deputy chief, you know, it, you know, even though they may be, um, you know, stereotypes, um, they, they they work within the confines of the film. And also I think as well is that when you watch this film, that when when each character appears, you know straight away what they're like. They, 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 there isn't like, there's no sort of hidden talent or anything about them. You know, when you see Al for the first time buying the Twinkies, saying it's for his wife, and you see him putting the money into the charity box, you know he's a good guy. When you see the deputy chief turn up, he comes out the car with his badge held up, you know, like a dickhead. Because, yes, of course he's police, because how would he have got through the line? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah. straight away you get a measure of what these people are like from the from the very first things that they do. I mean, you talk about the, the, the terrorists. Straight away, you see that these guys are professionals, that they know what they do because nobody there's nobody telling them what to do. There's nobody barking orders. So it's it, it's very kind of... It's very good at sort of letting you know what these characters are from, from, their, from your initial impression of them. Yeah. And one other thing that they do quite well here as well... Um is, uh, you, you know, the character of Holly played by Bonnie Bedelia, yeah? She is not, I mean, she could easily just be the damsel in distress in this film, but, you know, you know they, they've given a bit more to her. She's got some, you know, character strengths in her own right and, um, you know, some smarts about her. And I think that's another thing they, they, they did well here rather than just sort of make her the... That, you know the, the the weeping wife who he's got to save you, you know she, she had a bit more going on than that and but they, also again, I think nicely also, cast you know but also i think that <laughs> reflects the fact that in reality her character 
within this movie knows what John's like. So when things start to upset <laughs> Hans Gruber, she appreciates this is the John that pisses Only her John off. can gr- drive people that crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, I think, but also through that, through that knowing that he's a bit crazy comes her hope that, that, that something good will happen. So again, that's quite a nice, that's quite a well-rounded character thing because I think, I think one of the things that we're kind of dancing around in a way is that action films are all about cliche and stereotype in many senses, you know, well-coordinated, you know, well-coordinated fight scenes and bigger weapons and badder enemies and musclier heroes and all that. Whereas Die Hard and I suppose, I suppose Lethal Weapon and and subsequent films. um, Speed. 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 No, but Speed. Speed was, was, had a, had a, it's a long time I've seen it, but I don't remember it having any tongue in cheek bits. Whereas the, you would never say Die Hard is gritty at all. Even though, <laughs> I, I mean, Speed, you've got you've got essentially like a light comedian uh, as the sort of female lead, haven't you? Yeah, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, you got you got Sandra. But but I was thinking, but you know, I was just thinking of Die Hard. You don't think a Die Hard is gritty, even though when you unpack a lot of it, it's actually poking a stick at lots of hornets' nests, but doing it within the confines of an action film, which is what makes it clever. Whereas, you know, mm. Com- Commando is just an action film where some guy kills people. Yeah, it gets to the point where he, he he's mowing down so many people in Commando. Um, I just pretend that he's out doing the garden because he's just taking Arnie out. Goes gardening. Because yeah. he takes out so much of the plants and stuff as well at the same time. All those flowers keep popping as he's firing his uh, M60. What would what would you say is that I mean what in terms of have you ever heard the show on Radio Four like the inheritance tracks where you sort of go you know or where where what what would you give on to children? What do we think Diad has given us? What what films have come in the last ten years that you would say the lineage is as a result of what Diad achieved? Is there a well film? I mean well obviously not not that recent but back at the, at the time of. Of, of Die Hard, and I'm not saying these films were anywhere near as good, by the way, but it was it was used as a template. For example, you know some of the some of the early Steven Seagal films, like the uh, what what's the one Under Siege? Is it uh, the under, one with him and Siege, Tommy Lee yeah. Jones? I mean, that's uh, kind of Die Hard on a boat. Yeah, and then Die Hard on a plane with Executive Decision. Yeah, yeah which so I, that, love. So I love. So that, that, that's, the ca- that's the cash. Yeah. That's the cash. That's the cashing, but I'm saying, but what what's the legacy of Die Hard? That that's kind of what that's like. That's like everybody. That's like Disney trying to do. Well, I know they bought Star Wars, <laughs> but you know, it's like Disney's a bomb. When, when Star Wars comes along, we get Black Hole. Um, so yeah, what what great what, movie? But what what do I? I, can't, I the reason I ask is because I can't think of anything. I can't think of a last of a lasting testimony to it in current cinema no there isn't like a a film like it where it's you know it's that 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 isn't kind of like a rip-off that isn't like you know as keith said that it's you know it's die hard in a field that you know fill the space i i i can i can name two okay i'm interested uh uh, the uh, i would say uh dread and the raid Okay. Yeah. No. That, that that that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Raid is a good example hmm. because uh, I mean they're both set in like a tower, right? And and you've got like this you've got this character kind of killing their way up hmm. uh, until they get to the to the ultimate uh, you know villain. Um, 
So, uh, though, but though, but I know what you mean, Stuart. <coughs> kind of, those are the kind of the only two. It sort of, felt, it felt like almost like the Matrix killed off all the diehard in a movies, uh, and and then you had a sort of different different type of action movie came in, and, and now and obviously with the sort of superhero being movies being the predominant ones now. Mm. Uh, where you got this sort of you know sort of sci-fi tinged action it, it seems it seems we've moved away from uh, from that a bit but there are there are still those you know, I, I think there are still those die-hard influenced films they're just fewer now mm. that, that's, that's i mean it is it's, it sort of feels like of its time out of time but then it I can watch it without it feeling dated and that's a complete contra- contrary sentence i've just i've just uttered but I think I know what I'm trying to say, even though I'm not doing it very well. <laughs> yeah. Would, well, I mean, would, I, can I just say, hmm. would you say that um, after Die Hard, you couldn't do an action film the same way? So before Die Hard, we, we you know, we talked about you know, films like Commando, where it's like the, the one man army against, you know, against the world. And he's completely, you know, he comes out with maybe a bruise and, and I and then afterwards, do you after Die Hard came out? Do you think it was a, such a game changer that we saw that the action hero became less of like a, a Hulk and more of a normal person? Well, as, I mean, the, the, the whole I think Keith said it a couple of times this idea of the ordinary man that does the extraordinary. Mm. So in a way, it's got more in common with Hitchcock's North Hitchcock. by West. Yeah. So so in a so in a way, we're calling it an action film because it has some brilliant action, but actually. And this, it's a thriller. Is, this, this is the geek. This is like geeky because genres don't exist. There's just good. There's just good films and bad films, isn't there? But obviously, for the purposes of a conversation like this, if you drop the word action, then 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 there's a lot more things sit alongside Die Hard as a result. Mm. It's the word action when you say action thriller is a connotation in my mind, which is low rent, whereas Die Hard is never low rent ever. Well, the thing is, Die Hard's got the balance in so much, and this is why I think it is a classic and it's so good, is you're absolutely right. You've got you've got two Hitchcockian, and obviously I always like to talk about Hitchcock, but you've got two Hitchcockian elements going on in so much as you've got the 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 ordinary guy, although he is a cop, but he's still an ordinary bloke, yeah, in extraordinary circumstance. And you've also got the you know, you know, trapped in a in a confined space, although it is a massive building. But, you know, th- those are two sort of Hitchcock type elements there. You know, the, the sort of vertigo meets lifeboat, you know, type thing <laughs> at the extremes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you've got that going on. But also the, the word action is you have got quality action scenes that you, you, you know, that, that you'd expect to see in a James Bond film or an Indiana Jones film or whatever. In this, I mean, you, you know, the stunt work and the and the gunfights and the the action and the fist fights and all that stuff are, you know, really well done in this movie. So you you've kind of got this lovely combination uh, of, you know, it's not just a dumb action movie with with great stunts, but but little plot and little acting. It's 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 got you know that, but it's also got all of those. Um, you know action elements as well you've kind of got both in there with a good story and and, and a decent level of acting across the board and i think that's that's really why why this film holds up so well um as well as being a christmas movie <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned indiana jones there 
Keith, because I mean, I, I, I would connect almost John McLean and, and, and Indy together in terms of you got, you know, in Harrison Ford and Bruce Willis, you've got these action heroes who, mm. who, 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 who can get hurt, who are vulnerable, who yeah, you see clumsy who you see, sometimes, yeah, clumsy, clumsy sometimes, you know, a, a, you know, afraid, but at the same time, they're both, they're both smart, right? You know, yeah. Um, and, and, and they kind of almost win the day because they're resilient. You know, you see them get like really, really badly beaten by, uh, by, you know, and be overmatched so, so that you, you fear for them. You're like, Oh, how is he possibly going to get through, through this? You know, when you see, you know, we see Indy, you know, up against the sort of massive, like, you know, German, like uh, flying wing pilot, or you see, uh, you, you see, <laughs> yeah, you see John, against Carl, who who's just, you know, filled with this rage over what he did to his brother and just seemingly cannot be killed. Uh, so, which, I, you know, I, I guess you could argue does sort of make sense of how he comes back like this kind of crazed, you know, uh, Frankenstein's monster at the end. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, so I think there is a connection there, you know, if, if there's, you know, if, if there's any uh, sort of kind of previous stuff in the eighties, I think I think maybe what I'm revealing is my own is my own prejudice to the word action. I'm, I'm not I'm not allergic to it many stretch because obviously I like I like I like some, but I think during that period in the late eighties, it had become a dirty word because it was the Steven Seagal and all that kind of stuff that was going on the Chuck. And look, I watched Missing Action Five or whatever. You know, I did I did I did plumb those depths, but then. When you came into the nineties, you had this kind of this the, the the Tarantino and the Link Later and all that, and suddenly and you, and I guess at the same time as well we had things like Hellraiser um, and Candyman. So these films were so much better for me that the, 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 the action stuff was you like it was like you kind of you know you're fast growing up. When, this is me picturing myself at the time. It's like you want to grow up fast, don't you? So it's like, oh, those action films are daft. I'm much more sophisticated than that. Yeah, and then you never want to grow up. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you end. Yeah, then you end up rewatching Die Hard. But yeah, it's, it's the um, it's. But I think that's maybe part of it for me. It's like my own journey in terms of watching films is that Die Hard sits in a place where I was at a kind of tipping point where I wanted to take myself a bit more seriously for a bit. That's interesting. That really is because I remember when when. Uh, around that time i was discovering action films and i was actually it was about the time i started devouring them so you know watching like commando and predator and you know and then total recoil was coming out and you know just really sort of getting into the the whole of those kind of films so it's funny that at the point that you were wanting to sort of leave that behind and look for something else i was it really devouring that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, like I say, like I say, it's like it's not so much leave behind. It's like take myself more seriously. So while I'm taking mm. myself more seriously, I needed culture to reflect that. So my music and my film consumption, sort of. I mean, I watched a load of shite because and listened to a load of shite because I convinced myself it was highbrow, you know. But <laughs> but, but that was all part of that journey, you know. And I but it, but, I, but it's funny. I mean, you, you know, there's been obviously. It's particularly in that sort of late 80s, early 90s period in the home video period, you know, there was a hell of a lot of action content, um, you know, poured out there from from various, um, you know, action name stars and whatever. But it, it's funny how there, there were a lot of them and I, and I used to 
consume that stuff as well and and you, you know every time i was down the vhs or you know down the rental shop it would be coming back with either action sci-fi or horror movies essentially but um i always think that i always look at like die hard certainly the first three die hard films the th- first three lethal weapon films the first speed film and like executive decision which you mentioned earlier you know i always looked at those as they were action movies as well but they had something else they had that oomph degree that made them slightly higher quality than some of the steven seagal junk that was coming but, out but, yeah? but, speed, but speed was six years after diehard you know it's a long time mm. It know, was, yeah. Of, no, you're right. You know, you you kind of could your 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 concertinaing a kind of moment in your kind of cinema mind because of my life at the time. Yeah, those yeah, 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 were yeah. All around the same time. Yeah, but, yeah, but no, actually, absolutely. but actually, it stretch it spans a huge period. Yeah, um, and a while while now, obviously, nearly thirty years on, we can just put them all together, just like we can say, you know, the 80s, <laughs> to picture something, you know, 81 and 89 were very different years. Um, yeah. But I think that's, no, right. it's, it's interesting, that because it's it's like, almost like, in the way you're describing it, speed, in a way, books the trend, because it comes along at the kind of fag end of, of what's acceptable, and, but reinvents the high concept movie at the same time. Yeah, and, it, well, and interestingly, it was the cinematographer of this, like Yann de Bont, yeah. who, who yeah. was the cinematographer on this, was the director of Speed. So uh, oh, okay. oh, there is a sort of tenuous that. connection there. But, well, but the not tenuous at all. But, 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 I, but I think, I think <laughs> what, what really, really does um, deserve some discussion here as well is, if you like, the, 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 the team behind this. Because, you, you know, we've got John McTiernan, he obviously did the, the first and the third film in the franchise. But at the same time, John McTiernan also did, which, which we've mentioned here briefly, Predator, which was a fantastic film about a year or so later, you know, certainly around the same time. Uh, I remember that's why I knew of him, because, again, I had one of those EPK type things on Predator as well at the time with, with an ex-rental uh, copy. And obviously he did, you know, Hunt for Red October as well. But interestingly, if you look at the production team as well, you've got Joel Silver, who was also involved in Predator and the Lethal Weapon films, as well as this one, uh, and obviously went on to do the Matrix films and many others. And then you had Lawrence Gordon, who I remembered at the time, I was a fan as a kid of a TV show called Matt Houston, which was produced by Aaron Spelling that Lawrence Gordon actually created. And then obviously he moved in and was well known for the sort of action movies. And, you know, it's this same team that sort of gave us the following year Predator and and all of that sort of thing. And I think, you know, there's some kudos to certainly John McTiernan out of these in terms of being a quality um, director of of this action slash thriller type material. Um, what, What do you guys think about that? I think the Joe, the Joe Silver and Gordon point is 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 bang on because obviously they they've all sort of mapped out careers, which seems to sort of which is in our lifetime the development of this genre in a way. Let's, yes, know. well, 
we were just sort of saying about Commando. I mean, he was the yeah. producer of Commando. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yes, he was. Yeah, you know, you know, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a, in a, in a weird way, it's a truer line in terms of where Joe Silver is now, certainly, mm. than say, you know, the Weinstein brothers doing the burning as a starting point. You know, <laughs> like, and you think where they are now. You know, Joe Silver was doing Nice Guys, wasn't he? Only, only, yes. only this year. Yeah. So, so he, I was, he, he also the producer of The Matrix. Yeah, so so you know, and these are films that we've, and you know, Matrix has been mentioned in dispatches in this conversation. So clearly, Joe Silver would be would be a man who clearly knows what this is all about. Um, probably, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you you guys as directors, what do you think? Is 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 John a good director in your mind? Is does he does he direct well? Is I mean, that's like a daft question. Given <laughs> the movie, but, but from a director point of view, do you see? Uh, a film in the hands of uh, in safe hands or 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 interesting hands oh certainly i mean he he what's so good about him is that it's it's not flashy it, it it's it you know as as we as we've talked about with the the script and the story and the the way it's shot we we never it it's shown never told mm. So, you know, the whole thing about, you know, showing the watch, showing the picture being turned over, all those sort of little things we remember, those sort of very simple things, is it's kind of like, in some ways, it's kind of trademarked, the fact that he can tell a story and it's it's not like, look at me. It's not like there's, there's there isn't a shot in there that's not progressing the story. It's not sort of just there to sort of show off the director. You know, like, say, um, you know, Tarantino, he'll always have somebody walking to music. And I don't think you would ever get that in a a John McTiernan film. But do you you see, what what similarities do you see between how Commando's directed and how Die Hard's directed? Predator. 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 Sorry. Predator. Sorry. I'm I'm looking at a picture of Arnie and I'm saying, I'm I'm seeing the word Predator (laughs) and and saying the word Commando. Yeah. So, so in terms of Commando, what do you, do you see any similarities at all with Predator and Die Hard, given it's the same director? Well, it's it's interesting because with with Predator, which is another film I like, and of course that that one's got more of a sci-fi action element to it. Um, Mm. I know that uh, in terms of the action side of that, you know, the sort of second unit stunt work, that was actually done by a guy called Craig R. Baxley, who who was sort of well known for doing the action on the uh, the eighteen television series, where you know there was loads of action and nobody got hurt, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. uh, my understanding is, and I've only done a little bit of reading on this, but. Um, that there was there was some tension between McTiernan and Craig Baxley over how some of the action was was going to be shot. And certainly if you look at some of the before you get into the actual predator stuff, because, again, we're talking about a script where even though it establishes the alien landing right at the beginning, you've got this whole sort of um, normal sort of military action film going on a little bit before the predator intervenes and if you look at that scene where you know the classic knock knock where dutch comes and they sort of attack that base you look at the action on that and it is very much like a sort of eight it's got some 18 style angles and people flying through the air and stuff it does seem quite different to the rest of the film which i think McTin and had more control over but I but what I'm saying here is I don't know this for a fact it's just 
some things that I've picked up on in a few interviews that I've looked at. But um, I don't know. What, what, what do you guys think? I want to say it's curious to see that he directed Predator before Die Hard. Ah, so in some okay. ways, Die Hard is kind of like the sort of the anti-Predator. Mm-hmm. It, the fact that uh, in Predator, it's very much that macho 80s film, you know, that's all about the quips, you know, hang around or any time or, you know. And uh, Die Hard seems to be a, a, a sort of much better structured story. Because I, Predator, as I, I really enjoy it, but you you enjoy it for the moments, you know, you enjoy the you know uh, the the characters and the sort of the moments in it, and but then Die Hard is like it, it seems to be more of a complete package. Yeah, what do you, what what do you think, Clive? I I, th- I think um, it's interesting because uh, I think Predator, you see more quote unquote kind of signature John McTinn and camera moves like there's a particular setup which is like a figure of eight which he likes to do mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and it's sort of he's, he's got space in that right whereas mm-hmm. because Die Hard's so confined it's almost sort of forces him to do things which perhaps he wouldn't have done uh, normally in a similar way to uh, uh, sort of Hunt for Red October you know that it's sort of it, 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 in a way, he does his best work when you put him in a box. Um, right, yeah, submarine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I think as a director, he's very good at you know sort of setting up scene geography and mm. and, and, and keeping things still be kinetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, this is. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, it is. It is. This is kind of that sort of pre. Uh, sort of Michael Bay pre, you know, the sort of very fast cut stuff. Um, you know, this sort of, you know, what became known as sort of, uh, I've heard it called like chaos cinema, you know, this sort of fa- very fast cuts to very, sort of a lot of close ups. In this, you, 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 you do get wide shots, you do see, you know, where people are. And, and, it, and, it, and it's not, you know, and, and it, and even even when things get sort of when there's a lot of elements, you, you're never in any doubt of oh, okay, John's there. The helicopters are coming from here. Here's where all the uh, you know hostages are on the roof, and this is so you know you, you're not consciously thinking about that. It, it's just very well set up. Mm. I have to say that's a really good point because this time I watched it, I I was thinking it's amazing how he sets up the geography of just the office block because uh, when John McClane is sort of when they the when the terrorists come in and they take over the party and John McClane makes his escape, you see him going up the floors and you and you see he looks in and it's like oh that's the floor that's under the construction oh that's the floor with the guys with the missiles that's the floor with the lifts uh, and it's amazing how that information is given to you in that scene and so that for the rest of the film then when you see him at this one you know where he is and you don't have to think about it yeah actually on that point i do want to uh just reference uh for anyone that's interested in any further reading on this um our uh one of our one of our previous guests on the podcast has been um chris rogers um and chris is actually a writer on architecture and visual culture 
And uh, Chris, I remember him saying at one point about Die Hard and Die Hard, you, you know, architecture playing a very important part in Die Hard. And I've just had a look on his website, which is uh, chrismrogers.net. And on that, he actually has a blog called Action Reaction, um, which is about John McTiernan. And, and, and it looks particularly at Predator, Die Hard and Hunt for Red October. And um, it's, it, it does talk about, you know, his use of, of, of camera and space and, you know, you, you know, how that sort of contradicts, as, as you the point you made, Simon, you know, a lot of the sort of more shaky cam, fast cutty stuff that we have nowadays from, you know, Michael Bay or, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, the Bourne films. No, um, you, you, you know, the, the, um, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sorry, Clive. Um, you, you know, uh, that we have on that. So, you, you know, that, that's anyone who wants a bit of further reading, uh, if you go to chrismrogers.net, um, as I said, there's quite an interesting blog on that. And obviously, uh, you know, Chris was our guest on episodes where we talked about um, Miami Vice and uh, also the, the Daniel Craig, James Bond films. So, um, so yeah, check that out. <laughs> Thought I'd give him a little plug. <laughs> so, Keith, before we wrap up, um, yeah. have you decided what your favourite scene is? I, I thought I said I, I like the moment where... Um, uh, you, you know, you've got agents Johnson and Johnson, and oh, okay. <laughs> in terms in terms of that makes me smile. I wouldn't say okay, that's perhaps not my favourite scene. I mean, obviously the 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 the, the great scene in it, um, you know, the, the the real fun thing is the whole thing with the explosion and the fire hose and the jumping, <laughs> jumping and shooting the glass and all of that stuff. I mean, that's you know, really really action packed and really nicely shot. And really, sort of edge of your seat stuff. So I suppose if I had to choose one moment of action in the film, that mm. that would be my bit. Yeah. Well, my favourite scene, the bit I always look forward to seeing, is is the uh, the first time that uh, Hans Gruber and John McClane talk to each other over the walkie-talkies. I always love that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you know, are you just another American who saw too many westerns? Thinks he's John Wayne, and he goes, "Actually, I like." think i'm more like roy rogers <laughs> yes. I, I do love that scene and uh and of course it does give coined us the catchphrase coined his catchphrase <laughs> yes which uh he he used throughout all the other films one little element that i've not thought about that that, that uh, no, i had thought about but we, it don't, we ain't covered it in the sense of this is is the tv versions of this film now i'm not even i'm not <laughs> sure if if this is apocryphal or if this is I'm not sure, and I'm even confusing it when they the TV versions of Repo Man. But you've got, instead of Yippie Kaye motherfucker, you've got Melon Farmer. <laughs> well, I believe there's a version where he just says Yippie Kaye. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, oh, like, Mel- like, like in the later films. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Flip, Flip You as well, mm. which is ridiculous. But it's like, I'd never noticed this before. And, and, and I can't, I can't, claim to have seen it knowingly but i've i've had this this conversation sort of been recurring so i just wonder if any of you guys know is that is am i, am I remembering that right or is that just apocryphal i i'm sure it was but I, I i know that i've i've seen die hard on on tape more than i have seen it on tv i i think i i don't know it, it 
there's certain films which you can watch on TV, it's fine, but uh, Die Hard's always one of those films when it's on TV, I kind of, and it's got commercial breaks, I kind of skip it because it's, it does make the film drag out. I, I, yeah, I think there's a think, great Blu-ray. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I think you're right, Stuart, but, but, the, but this, is, this is a thing where, this is like, uh, I don't know when they stopped doing this, was it like the early 2000s? But the, mm. there was there was like a peak time when they did this because I remember that I, I remember I had a version which I kept for a long time because it always made me made me laugh. I had a version of Midnight Run, which is one of the most pro, uh, profane movies ever made in terms of just swearing, and it was it was like it was it was Melon Farmer's galore in that film, yeah. and and it and it, and I think I think it was I think it was ITV that used to do it. They used to, yeah. They, they used to, yeah. Okay. Their films. Can I can I say what was the weirdest thing they ever censored on ITV was the Alien Queen's hisses when they showed aliens. You got aliens in on the, every podcast. That's brilliant, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going for the record. <laughs> well, what, did they predator. Se- what, what did they censor it with? Well, they didn't. They just they just they cut it out completely. So the you know the hisses that she makes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a version. I remember seeing this. Um, I think it was around Christmas time. Um, I know I was at a relative's house, and it was on. And she'd open her mouth, and there'd be nothing. There wouldn't be it's no weird, hisses. Yeah, yeah. It's weird when but they I'm, cut. I'm... And then, of course, the, for some films, um, you know, like uh, I remember Beverly Hills Cop being one of them. There was obviously loads of things where they, because obviously he's, he's effing and blind and all the way through that, and they 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 just dub it, but. There were some scenes that were actually shot as a TV version, like the, well, the bit in the back of the cigarette truck at the beginning is is completely different. And no, I remember, I remember experiencing this. Um, I worked with when I worked with David Nutter years ago. Uh, I worked on a film called Disturbing Behaviour, which starred James Marsden and Katie Holmes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, they yeah. went when they they were they were setting up one scene where there's there's some profanity in it. You know, he says "fuck you" or whatever. You know, in this scene, and then they actually slated a different one called TV version. And while everything was set up, they just run the scene again real quick, but removing the, well, the, the swearing, which was really do, do you know what that weird, was? You know? The, that, that was <laughs> that they did they 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 did have blockbuster versions of films. Wow. Okay. <coughs> so so for block because blockbuster was such a dominant force in in the home rental market in America, they would they could dictate from their obviously Christian values. Or whatever, whatever was fueling it, you know, Middle America rules. Okay, they would, they would. This is so. I think some of it was that as well. I think some of it was those versions would then obviously play well eight o'clock on a on a Sunday on ITV or whatever, you know. Right. So you, plus you plus airlines, to... I guess. Airline yeah, 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 yeah. For when you used to have the shared screen back before, you know, you had your own channels and stuff. But yeah, they yeah, used yeah. to have to have it for everyone, didn't they? So I suppose that was a, a reason as well, maybe. Um, but it is, but it is that that because it has such because it has such quotable swear lines where they swear because it's 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 only a handful of times, isn't it, in Die Hard? When they censor it, they're censoring, you know, the moment that you're waiting for them to say, so it stands out like a mile. Whereas if a film's just full of profanity, it just means it's not full of profanity. Mm. Oh, it is <laughs> yeah. indeed. Yeah. So, guys, uh, before we finish, I have to ask. What other film that isn't a Christmas film do you guys watch at Christmas? 
God. Surely it's aliens, isn't it, Simon? <laughs> no, uh, Gremlins. Well, that's a Christmas film. No, it's it, set well, at Christmas. Set at Christmas, yeah. But that's a Christmas no, film in my, great. in my book. Yeah. No, I, I consider Yeah, Gremlins but I mean, in, as, as far as... Uh, I mean... I mean, why Die Hard is considered to be a Christmas film is that it takes place at Christmas. But, so but, does Lethal Weapon 1. Yeah, but it, and, and again, that that could be another one. That could be another choice. And it, it, that is kind of like what I'm asking is, you know, whatever film that has Christmas in it but isn't a Christmas film, do you guys watch? I don't really. I don't have a film that I watch. I mean, Die Hard's about the only one, really, that I, that I would watch. Like as a Christmas tree, you know. Die Hard Two. Actually, no. It's funny you've been talking about all the sequels. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't give two hoots for any of the sequels. To be honest with you, it doesn't. No, the second one's all right, but what about I what put, about the third one? Is it sort of a sequel to? Um, I've got I've this got story. No, I have got no. I have. I've, I've obviously erased it from my memory. Because it's funny when you were doing the summation of what they were about. I was like thinking, no, I don't well, remember saving New well, York. Jer- Jeremy Irons plays the the brother of Hans, and he, he you know and seeks revenge against McLean. Kind of. I'm thing. sure. I'm sure, the... he, I'm sure he does. But I've just I've just eradicated it from my memory. Oh, oh, oh right. it's, it, it, it's 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 very good. And why I like it is the fact that they do something different. It isn't. It isn't a case of being stuck in a building and having to rescue it. It's the fact that uh, it's not a Christmas. It's not a Christmas. <laughs> no, uh, uh, these terrorists are threatening to uh, detonate bombs within the city, and John McClane has to do what they say, and so he has to solve all these different puzzles. Yeah, it reminds me. There's bits in it that remind me kind of of of, of the bits in Dirty Harry when he has to get to all the different phone booths. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's obviously done on a sort of much grander scale in Die Hard with a Vengeance, and of course, interestingly, that this was also directed by John McTiernan, hmm. the, the third one. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I I agree. Die Hard with a Vengeance is a, is a is a good movie. But I think it's kind of where the series loses its soul a little bit because I, I think it, it, where it, where it, things go off the rails massively is when Holly stops being in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, she gets relegated to just being like this cartoonish, shrewish uh, voice on the end of a phone having a go at him. You know, and 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 he and he turn, and he becomes this, you know, sort of. Almost caricaturishly, kind of like alcoholic, broken down cop character. Well, yeah, Whereas... because it was written for Martin. It was written for Lethal Weapon. You see, he was kind of that. That part in that film was 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 kind of supposed to be the Martin Riggs, you know, Mel Gibson role. Yeah, and well, they it, kind uh, of retrofitted it. You know, but that's what <laughs> I mean about about it moving away from from being a. You know, from being a, a you know a quite unquote like a John McClane movie into a sort of John McClane action hero movie, because the first two, you know, you've got Bonnie Bedelia and she really does sort of ground it and give it heart. Yeah, no, she's great. Uh, I agree. Yeah, and, and they and they've constantly been trying to find something, find find a replacement for that in terms of okay, let's stick the daughter in there, the son, and it's just not worked. No. Well, that plus the fact they've made him like a, you know, 
superhero as well. I mean, it really has seemed to me to completely move away from the character of John McClane. But you're right, it, it probably did start with the third film, actually, um, in some respects. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. second film is deeply flawed, but it does have Holly in it, and it does have some fun moments, you know. So, yeah, I mean... But uh, I mean, uh, to answer your earlier question about non-Christmas Christmas movies, the one that comes to mind for me is Trading Places. Oh, excellent! Yeah, that's a good one to watch. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I got. I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> although, although, admittedly, when you when you watch that in 2016, it's uh, that was pun intended, by the way. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you watch that in 2016. Um, it's a very racist movie. But that's a, that's for that's for another another movie held discussion. In a real way, it's not like it's not racist in the kind of love thy neighbor way. It's like it has racism in it, and you're like, wow, this is just this is like just being dealt with head on. It's not like it's not like a polit- it's not making a political point. You're just saying this is what it's like, and you're like, what you is know? it not making a political point? I mean, well, well that is, it is it is and it is yeah. It's not. But what I'm saying is, it's not it's not preaching. Racism is right, yeah. bad. It's going, look how bad racism is, you idiots. It's like showing overt. Yeah, it's like, look at 48 hours. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of the heroes is a massive racist. Um, did, and, and they've just done that with Helen Highwater, haven't they? And you really like Jeff Bridges, and yet he's a daft racist who loves his colleague. Who's a Native American? Sorry, just a day. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm I'm digressing, and we've been going. That's all right. We hours. do it. We do it all the time. Don't worry. So, um, <laughs> I, right. I, I I think I think we have proved though with this film that uh, you know old habits are like John McClane, aren't they? <laughs> in oh, in the fact that we want to uh, <laughs> oh. we want to watch it every year. You know. <laughs> Did you write that down, Keith? Did you write that down? He's and, been and, waiting and, to and, say and that all podcast. <laughs> Uh, oh, well, yeah. oh, well look thank you very much for inviting me on I've yes a it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure we, we need it's to say merry joy. christmas uh because you know yeah, are you guys all set for christmas yeah yep yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah all good now thank you yeah merry christmas you know, the, uh, you know we, we've saved the hostages uh you know uh, <laughs> we, we, we lost the we lost the, the top floors of nakatomi plaza but Otherwise, we're all good. I think. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Fox Plaza is still there. I was there earlier this year. There you go. It's, it's quite I, funny. You think, oh, look, die hard. <laughs> when, I mean, I missed this off at the beginning. Ironically, I'm doing a sort of, I'm doing some work on a screenplay at the minute for somebody else. And it's called The Block. And it's okay. funny enough, it's set in a 13 story block. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I've not, I've not made that connection then. I mean, it's a very different story, but... Can I play the, the everyman? Stuart, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 sure, is, is it like Die Hard, but in a building? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. Oh. So, 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 Stuart, the... if, if people want to find your stuff... Uh, we usually give an opportunity at the end to find your work. So, well, the easiest where, where way can to they find you? The best thing to do is just is Twitter for me, because I'm because I'm you know I'm, it's like crack cocaine to me Twitter. So um, at Leighton Rocks L E Y T O N Rocks I O C K S, and I've got details there, and I regularly tweet out about my other podcasts and views on films and or Liverpool Football Club. So if, you want, if you're if looking for any of that, 
you'll find it. Oh, and my wife's artwork. Wow. And of course, you've got the Brit, Brit Flicks podcast, haven't you, yeah, as well? Yeah, so. yeah, no, that'll be. Uh, I've had a bit of a, because of work I've had on, I've had a bit of a, a lull, but I'm interviewing. Funny enough, tomorrow, although this doesn't matter in terms of when people listen to it, tomorrow I'm interviewing a guy who's done a PhD into what makes good horror film. Oh, wow. All right. And I'm, I've got no idea where this is going to go. I can't even begin to start writing questions. So I'm just going to see what he says it is and then follow his lead because he's the Sometimes one. Sometimes they're the best ones, though. Aren't yeah, they, but, he, you know? but, he, but he's done the research. So I might as well just find, I might as well just go with where the audience doesn't know we're going as well. So, and, and as we go, find out. But I'm fascinated because he's done, he's done like a kind of not just the metrics in terms of box office, he's done all the kind of metadata about the type of horror film the type of hero, the type of monster, the type of supernatural, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm fascinated to know what works. And obviously, the proof of what is found flies in the face of, of what usual advice is. This is how I wanted to get him on, because he basically I was talking to him about um, some general advice I'd been following um, to do with what makes good horror film. And in fact, what makes good horror film for me is a subjective thing about being a fan of movies, whereas what he's done, is, a, is an analysis of what makes a good horror film in the marketplace in 2016. So look out for that one, everybody. Oh, I, I, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to that one. So, Clive, uh, how can we find out about your work? Well, if you go to the A to Z of sff.com, you can uh, find all our uh, podcasts that I do with uh, Rob Wickings on there. Uh, on science fiction and fantasy media so that's movies, TV, comics, books um, and if you're interested in my work as a filmmaker if you go to Vimeo and search for Clive Ashenden then you'll find some of my more recent stuff there uh, Sorry Stuart, I cut you off there what were you going to say? I wasn't going to say anything other than Merry Christmas and thanks for having me <laughs> You're very <laughs> welcome <laughs> uh, Keith, where can we find your work? Yeah, uh, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles with Isles spelled E-Y-L-E-S, as in my last name, uh, there's some films that I've made on there for you to watch. And obviously, if you put my name into IMDb, you can see sort of past and present and future projects listed there as well. And as always, you can find my work on independentrunnings.com. So uh, you can listen to this podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube and all good podcast providers. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, please leave us a review and a rating. It all helps. So thank you guys for coming on. And um, it's been a pleasure to talk die hard with you. Yeah. Oh, Merry it's Christmas, it's everyone. It's been a pleasure to be on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. And, and also, I need to say to our listeners as well, please listen out for our New Year podcast because we've got something quite special for that as well. Yes, we do. So, just leaves me to say uh, Merry Christmas to you all and uh, join us uh, next week uh, for the next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs of stopping, and I 
I brought some corn for popping The lights are turned way down low Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight How I hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight How I hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow 